0: Good morning. Anybody uh, graduate this past week? No? Okay. (laughs) If you did, congratulations. That's a big milestone. I applaud you. And no, I'm the only one. I gave other people a chance. And they didn't. Congratulations. That's a big thing. And now you're one step closer to a mortgage payment. (laughs) So sorry about that. Uh, as Jerry mentioned, we're starting a new series this morning uh, on a, uh, the book of Colossians called Enough. Uh, Colossians, I'm going to give you a little background to kind of set this up. Colossians is called Colossians because it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in the city of Colossae, right? there was an a city named Colossae, and so the people there are called Colossians. If Paul had written us a letter, it would be the book of Hoosiers, and it would follow Second Michiganders, which is a weird-sounding book. I want to show you where Colase was. It's a city in modern-day Turkey, in southwestern modern-day Turkey. It's a real place. You can see it down there in the corner here. Let me make it a little more obvious for you with that giant arrow. That's Colase right there. And it's important. I want to show you this for two reasons. I think it's important for for two reasons. First is this is a real place with real people. Right? I've been there. There's nothing there now, but there was when Paul wrote this. It's a real place with real people, and that matters because sometimes we read the Bible like it's these stories, and, and they're all fairy tales. And no, this is a real book written to real people at a real place, and the second reason is you never know when you're going to need this for Jeopardy because <laughs> if there's anything we're learning on Jeopardy right now, there and James, James Holhoutzer, and there's like, 18-month run of dominance is you never know when you will need some useless tidbit of information. As a side note, I feel very bad for everyone else who is on during Jeopardy right now. Can you imagine you love Jeopardy and you've waited for your moment and you get there and you're playing against the bionic, like half-robot, half-human guy who has just all of this knowledge in his head? My goal would be like, I just want to make it to Final Jeopardy. Like, just don't end up in negative numbers. Paul is is writing this letter. Because the Colossian church, the the church in Colossae, they're dealing with an issue. They're dealing with false teaching. So Paul writes them this letter to challenge them and remind them of the greatness of God. He's concerned about the gospel being watered down by the co-opting of other religious elements and practices. And the gospel is just the good news about Jesus. He's concerned that these false teachers are, are adding other stuff to it and watering it down. And so he pushes back against this false teaching, not by picking apart those arguments, but by showing how Jesus is the greatest truth there is. He emphasizes the importance of Jesus because he wants the Colossians to know and experience the richness of Jesus and our relationship with him. That's that's what Paul hopes here. Because Jesus isn't simply a good thing, he's everything. He's not part of the solution, he's the whole answer. Jesus is the only thing that is enough for us. If you want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 9 to 14. Paul starts this in chapter 1 the way he often starts, kind of introducing himself and and talking about who he is, and and he says, "We, we always pray for you. It means him, he and Timothy, we always pray for you. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard of your faith. And he wants to to write and communicate a message. And we see sort of that message summed up in verses 9 to 14. Verse 9, he says, We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. We've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you, but we ask God to give you these things, complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins." Paul lays it out there. I mean, that is dense. Like, that is the fruitcake version of scripture. There is a lot there. There is a lot there. Paul wants the Colossians to understand more about who God is, how much he loves them, and why the life he offers is what they are truly searching for. But he doesn't just want them to know knowledge for knowledge's sake. He doesn't just want them to learn more because God will love them more if they learn more. It's the opposite. He wants them to learn more so they will understand how much God already loves them, that God cannot love them more than he already does. He wants the Colossians, and I think we can safely say he wants us to have a deep and lasting understanding of who Jesus is and what he means for the world in general and for us personally. Because that truth is revolutionary. And that truth is transformational. And it's not some vaguely spiritual wisdom and understanding either, right? He's not just saying, just be spiritual in some way and and that's good enough. Just just be spiritual in some way. It's God-given, God-empowered wisdom and understanding. That's why Paul reminds them several times in several different ways about the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his work to rescue us from our sin and our brokenness. And he lays some of the foundations back in verses four to six, where he says, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. So he acknowledges like they they have a relationship with God through Jesus. They know Jesus. There's a genuine faith there. And it comes from their confident hope of what God has reserved for them in heaven. They know that God has secured their future, that Jesus has secured their eternal future. He has paid the price they cannot pay and secured their future that they could never secure. Since you've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. He wants to go back to this to say, This gospel, it's not just this knowledge, it is this transformational knowledge. You are different because of this knowledge, and the world is changing because of this knowledge. And he fleshes it out more later on in verses 12 to 14 when he says he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people. What he's saying is that that we do not deserve an inheritance. We have not earned an inheritance. Instead, God in his love grants us the inheritance of his son. Because of Jesus, we have a, a share that we would not have otherwise, which is incredible. He says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He's rescued us from brokenness and, and sin and shame and hurt and pain. He's rescued us out of the, the mess that we make and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. And I, I love that language because the rescued means, means he's come in and, and saved us. It's a strong word. He saved us. But then he transplants us, right? He he saves us from this terrible place and transplants us and moves us and gets us established in the perfect place. Powerful. Because Jesus purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. It really means in whom we have redemption. Because a cost was paid. That's what redemption means. A cost was paid. Jesus paid a cost for us He played a blood price. He traded his life for ours. He bought our freedom with his blood. So, why does Paul want that for the Colossians and for us? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us. In verse 10, he says, Then you will live. I love this. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. The reason this knowledge matters, the reason that growing in our understanding of who God is matters, the reason that, that Paul wants us to experience the fullness of God is that when we do that, the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord. And now it's not just because that's what it looks like to love and obey God on our part, right? But that's also because that's how we experience the rich, meaningful, satisfying life so that, that we desperately want to know the, When the most powerful person says jump, the answer is, How high would you like, sir? But God isn't just saying do that. It's the way we experience the fullness of being that we desperately long for. So that begs the question for us How do we live a life that will always honor and please the Lord? How do we live a life that will always honor and please the Lord? And if that feels like a pretty high bar, it should, because it is a pretty high bar, right? God asks big things of us, but the first thing we need to do there is to understand honestly if that's really what we want. We need to start there. Is that really what we want? Do I really, really truthfully want to live a life that will always honor and please the Lord? And our default might be to say, yes, but really, it's a, is that true of my life right now? Is that true of my life in this season? Because at our core, we often believe we can save ourselves. At our core, we often believe that. Here in Colossians, the, the false teachers were putting their spin on truth to make it easier and more palatable, more self-determined and more flexible. And we do that too. We decide what is most important to us. What we value most, and we are so drawn often to watering down faith until it's more manageable and more convenient. What we want to do is fit faith into a neat box that we can pull out when we need it. I went with my wife to see the new uh, Aladdin movie last week. I'm not a big fan of musicals. I've never been at the grocery store and heard anyone spontaneously burst into song about a head of lettuce. And so it wasn't long into the movie when I turned to my wife and was like, is this a musical? (laughs) Yes, it was. But you know what we want? What struck me from that movie? We want the genie. That's what we want. We want a source of infinite cosmic power and an easily portable device that will have no influence on our lives except when we want it to. Is that that so unreasonable to ask for? Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's what we want. We look for shortcuts and for easy outs, but the problem is God is the one who sets the standards here, not us. God determines what is worthy, not us. We don't get to decide what we want to give him. God sets the parameters. Think about your kids when you're like trying to talk to them about giving a gift to someone. Like what Their first thought is often, right? What's the, what's the junkiest broken toy that I have? Here, they can have this. this, this they'll love this. And that's our attitude to God. You can have whatever I have left over. You can have the dregs of my life. You can have what I feel like giving you. And we don't get to set the standard. God sets the standard. We need to honestly ask ourselves, whose opinion do we care about most? Whose applause are we seeking? Whose praise do you want? Who's in charge here? Who's in charge for you? Is it you? Sometimes, if we're honest, it really is us. That the opinion that matters most is our own. That we think we know what we want in our life. We think we know what we need. And so we have created a world in which we are the most important character. And if I'm honest, I see that true in my life at times. And I hate that. But even though I would never say those words, that's the way that I live. Is it the opinions of others for you? That what others say so defines and shapes your existence that you will punt on things you care about or believe in if others don't approve of that. That you're willing to reshape yourself based on how you think others perceive you. Whose opinion matters most to you? When we put anyone else in charge of our lives, we begin to warp truth to suit our needs. I love how this one pastor says it. So so here's what it comes down to. The ultimate choice in life is between pleasing ourselves and pleasing God. I don't like those black and white questions because I like wiggle room, right? I like gray. I'm a big fan of gray. There's a lot of room in gray. And you can rationalize and craft your own story when there's a lot of gray area. But that is a crystallizing question. The ultimate choice in life is between pleasing ourselves and pleasing God. And when I look at my life in that grid, I get uncomfortable. How do you feel? Because taking it a step further, another pastor says it like this, the key to lasting happiness and real pleasure in this world is not found in seeking gratification, but in pleasing God. And you know why? Because we don't know what we're doing. And yet God who loves us and knows us and created us does. We don't know what we're doing. If we knew how to find our own happiness, we would all have it. Because we just would decide, all right, well, this is gonna make me happy and now I'm good. All right, that's enough. I I've got it. If we knew how to do it, there would be so much more contentment. But the fact that there isn't shows we don't. We just also don't want to admit that we don't. But the God who knows us and created us, He is the one who knows what fulfills us at a deep level that seeking our own gratification will never achieve it. But in seeking to please the Lord, we will also experience the gratification and the the meaning and the purpose that we desperately want. So how do we do that? What does a life that will honor God and please the Lord look like? What does that life look like? I want to give you four things that Paul talks about in verses 10 to 12. I mean, he lays them right out there for us. A life that honors and pleases the Lord does these things. The first thing it does is bear fruit, bears fruit. Now, fruit is is not just our actions, but everything we say and do. It's the acting out of what we believe to be true. Bearing fruit is really when we give truth legs in our lives. Those things reveal who we really are, right? And it makes sense, doesn't it? If you walk up to a tree and it's got oranges growing on it, you're not gonna assume it's an apple tree, That would be weird. What comes out when we get jostled and shaken by life is what's inside of us. Does it match who you say you are? What does your fruit say about you? Only a healthy tree can produce good fruit. Only a healthy tree can produce good fruit. And that's hard because fruit is a byproduct of the overall health of the tree. And so Paul says here that the more we understand who Jesus is and how much we need him at a deeply personal level, the more that changes us, the more we understand who Jesus is, it can't help but come out of us, right? The more we are overwhelmed that God would love us this much, that his son would step into time to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. We can't help but share that. It can't help but change us. Think about it like this. It's like doing an experiment with a child where you take like a flower and you stick it in a, in a glass of dyed water. And what happens? You know, you watch the flower kind of suck up this dyed liquid into the stem and, and into the petals and the color of the flower changes because it's, it's sucking up this, this dyed liquid and it's changing the flower. That's what it means, right? Bearing fruit is an example, is a picture, is a sign that we're living a life that pleases God. Because we can't help but look different when we are rooted in him. The more we understand and experience him, it can't help but change us. Second thing that Paul talks about is we grow in knowledge. We grow in knowledge. Just like in any relationship, the more you learn about someone, the richer the relationship gets. Right? It's hard to love someone that you don't really know. But the more you learn, the deeper and more meaningful the relationship gets. My favorite thing about being married to my wife, Bethany, is that she gets me better than anyone on the planet. I mean, she knows me. We will be sitting down watching TV and I will laugh at a commercial and she will say, "You you were laughing about this, weren't you? And it's like, yes, I was. Get out of my head. It's so rich. It's learning Her and what makes her tick and and her family and and what she loves, what she doesn't like. I mean, those things, that's what makes the relationship so rich. God is so big and so powerful and so amazing and so wonderful that we can't ever hope to fully understand him. There will always be more to know and experience about him. And when we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, we grow personally personally. Think about it like cooking. The more you learn about cooking, the better your food gets. Certain things work really well together, right? Certain things don't. Things like peanut butter and chocolate go, inc- I don't even like chocolate, and like, those things were like made for each other. Bacon and eggs, tomatoes and fresh mozzarella, they just work together. And the more you learn, you learn those things. And, and certain things do not go together, peanut butter and pickles, No. Fish and hot fudge, onions and absolutely anything, (laughs) anything. I've lost this side of the room. (laughs) They don't go well together. But the more we learn and we understand different things, we get to experience a different type of food. My wife and I were out somewhere, and they had, you know, like a crudité set up, like fruit and crackers and cheese, and I was telling a friend of mine, you know what's really good? If you get, like, a sharp cheddar and you eat it with a grape, like, at the same time, like, it's really good. It's a really good pairing, and my wife looks at me and says, you learned that from Ratatouille, didn't you? (laughs) I'm like, no, yes, but it was really good. I didn't know. I didn't know. More of the right ingredients create richer, deeper flavors. That's one of the reasons that I love getting to teach like this. Because every time I do, I am challenged personally. I learn so much. God pushes me that my understanding of who God is gets a little bit bigger and a little bit deeper and a little bit fuller. And I can't help but be moved by that. How do we grow in knowledge? Spend time with God. Spend time with him. Learn him like you learn about your favorite TV shows or your favorite hobbies or the lyrics to your your favorite obscure 90s hip-hop songs. Learn him. Read the Bible. Dive into the Ridge Reading Challenge if you haven't started that yet. If you're saying, I don't feel close to God or I don't feel like I know him, my first question would be, are you spending time with him? when i feel disconnected in my life if i'm honest and i stop and i pause those are usually the moments where, where i'm not spending time with god just to enjoy him just to learn for my sake grow in knowledge of who he is the third thing is be strengthened be strengthened and i know that might sound weird because it's like that sounds like passive how do i be strengthened Well, really, it's less a command to be strengthened and more a result because when we're living this kind of life, we are allowing God to strengthen us. We are strengthened by God. We're getting out of his way and allowing him to work in and through us because that's the great love of God is that God doesn't say you couldn't be perfect beforehand, but now that you know Jesus, you must be perfect on your own. He says, let me work in and through you and enable and empower you. And he breaks it down right here. He says, being strengthened helps us develop endurance. Endurance here is God given strength through faith in the most difficult of circumstances. Endurance is to live faithfully even when we feel like we've got nothing left. Being strengthened also helps us become more patient. Patience here is God-given strength through faith to deal with difficult people, to deal with difficult circumstances and respond differently. It's an even-temperedness. There's no need to retaliate there. Patience allows us to live hopefully even when we're struggling in the most difficult circumstances. This is God empowering and making possible what he asks of us. It's proof of God's great love for people, proof of his grace and mercy, that God says, let me work in you. God wants us to be able to endure. God wants us to be able to be patient. And God is saying, let me develop those things in you. Basically, what he's saying to us is, stop fighting me. He wants us to experience that. So how do we experience being strengthened? You ever seen someone struggle to to put something together and you desperately want to step in and help? My oldest son loves Legos, loves Legos. And a couple months ago, he decided he wanted to take all of his Legos and rebuild them all according to their instructions, which is a really cool idea. The the problem is all his Legos were in like a couple big bins, all just mashed together. And that's hard because they're small, very particular pieces. You gotta find the right stuff. And so we'd set it up and 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 sit there, and I was this parts guy. I had the fun job, I'd dig through, and we need a one-by-one square white. I'm like, okay. I would dig through that stuff and I'd give him the parts and and he would he would make them. And that was a, a great experience for us. But the picture that stuck with me is he had a huge task in front of him something he may not have been able to do on his own. I didn't do it for him, though I wanted to because I love Legos. Instead, I enabled and empowered him to do it better than he could have solo. And that's what God does on our behalf, that God works in us. It's like the greatest coaching ever, because whereas a coach can only teach and then cross his fingers and hope that the player does it right, God teaches and then works in us and enables us through his spirit to do it right. God wants to strengthen us with endurance and patience. Last thing is give thanks. Give thanks. You don't give thanks for your paycheck. You give thanks for a Christmas present, right? You don't give thanks when you get your tax refund in the mail. You give thanks for a birthday surprise. And the reason is because one of those you feel like you've earned and the other was an undeserved gift. Folks, our attitude is often, if you're earning it, there's no need to give thanks for it. We apply that to spiritual things as well. When we feel like we can earn God's love, we don't have an attitude of thankfulness. But when we understand who God is, how much he loves us, and what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, we can't help but feel thankful. We can't help it. Our level of thankfulness is a good barometer for our understanding of Jesus and what he's done. Thankfulness gives us perspective. Because when we're thankful, there's an understanding that things are happening beyond my control, that I am benefiting from others, that there is something to be thankful about. And when I'm not thankful, there's this feeling and belief that I am sort of the master of my domain, of my story, and that that I am making these things happen. And it's not really about not just giving thanks to others, but really about giving thanks to God. And the reason is because all good things come from him. So that even in the worst moments of our life, we can see that there are good things happening, even if they're tiny little small good things, and know that God is present and still doing good, that God loves us and is invested in our story. And even in in the absolute worst, most unredeemably painful moments, we can say with gratitude that God is engaged with us, that we are not forgotten, that the powerful, sovereign Lord of the universe, with all of this influence, cares about me and my story intimately, We can be thankful for that, that we are not forgotten or on our own. And giving thanks when we're able to do that, that's a a sign that we're living this kind of life that Paul calls us to here. A life that will always honor and please the Lord because it shows that we have this perspective that God is interceding on our behalf. And the way we do this, it starts with attitude. starts with our heart. We are first thankful in our heart before we're ever thankful anywhere else. It starts with that understanding of the love that God has for us and the way he would move towards us, that God would bless us, that God cares for us. When we get that, when we, when we give thanks, we, we show that we understand that a little bit better. I find it interesting that these four things that Paul talks about are all God-focused and not us-focused. They're all God-focused and not us-focused. We bear fruit because of what God does in and through us. We grow in knowledge of God because God has revealed himself to us. We are strengthened by God's power. We give thanks for who God is and what he's done. We give thanks because there are things to give thanks for. Years ago, there was a young pianist prodigy. He was incredibly gifted, and people were excited about his first concert. That first public concert was going to be at Carnegie Hall. So the night of the concert, he walks out onto the stage in his fancy tuxedo and he plays for 90 minutes and it was incredible. I mean, it was incredible. He played with passion and emotion. People were deeply moved. They were in awe of his talent. When he finished playing, he stood and he walked to to center stage and people began to clap. The applause grew and People all over began to stand up and cheer until the whole audience was on their feet. I mean, this is powerful. What was interesting was how the young prodigy responded. As the audience applauded, he stood and he stared back at the center chair of the first balcony. People were clapping and shouting, bravo, and recognizing his talent. And yet he stood there and he stared silently back at the center chair of the first balcony the audience began to notice what was, what was happening and it, it became uncomfortable. People began to turn around and, and look for what he was staring at. And then they noticed that there was one man in the entire hall that wasn't standing. An old man w- with a long white beard who was sitting in the center chair of the first balcony. That man was the prodigy's teacher. It didn't matter what these other folks thought of his playing. It mattered what that guy thought of his playing and so he waited and he waited and eventually the teacher began to clap and he too stood up and only then did the prodigy take his bow who sits in the center chair of the first balcony for you who sits in the center chair of the first balcony for you whose praise do you care about the most whose applause do you need Because folks, whoever sits in this chair for you determines your purpose. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus needs to sit here. Now there might be some of you that are thinking, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian and Jesus sits there. And so maybe my question for you is who's sitting there right now, today, in this moment? Who's sitting there in this season of life for you? Who's sitting there in the situation you're going through? Who is sitting there? Because when it's Jesus, that changes everything. It may not change our circumstances the way we hope, though it may, but what it will change is us, our attitude, our approach, our hope, our eternal perspective, our ability to be thankful. Who sits in this chair for you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love us. Father, we thank you that you care about us more than we can imagine, Lord. Father, would you challenge each of us right now as we sit here thinking, who have we put in that share in our lives right now? Who sits there today in this moment? Because, Father, what you want us to know is that it's not about us doing all of these things. It's about what you have done for us. And that when we understand that, how deeply you love us, how you have rescued us and transported us to a new future, how you have redeemed us through your son, Lord, then everything is changed. Father, would you help us to understand and experience that in a new way today? Father, meet us each where we are and help us to take one more small step in that journey. Give us a little bit bigger glimpse of of who you are, Help us to let you in more and more. Father, thank you that you meet us where we are and you bring us to yourself. Pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.